Yes, the reading is Philippians 2 and beginning at verse 6. Who, that is Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thank you very much, Angela. Um, I know that TNG looked at Philippians 2 um, recently. Uh, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I'm not going to do a, a sort of in-depth exposition of it and go over the, that terrain again. But keep it open because we will come back to that passage. The question we're considering tonight is, is this. Did the church invent Christianity? And I don't know whether that uh, comes over as a contemporary question, but I think there are aspects of it in the era of fake news that um, are contemporary. I'm trying to think of an example of, of our culture that uh, might resonate with. I'm not particularly up to date with TV miniseries at the moment, but I have been known to watch them, things like uh, 24 probably dates me a bit. That's about 10 years out of date now, isn't it? I need Vicky Georgiadis to bring me up to speed with what's on. There's something about becoming evil, something like that I should be watching. But 24 was great in the day. Um, and if you've never binge-watched that particular thing, it, it was a catalogue of conspiracies. There was fake news in every episode. Nobody could be trusted, whether it was the CIA, the counter-terrorist unit, the chief of staff, the president's wife, the president... Uh, very good television the whole time because it meant that each hour, each hour-long episode, could end with another shock revelation, so you came back for more. You carry that sort of culture into the arena of Christianity, and there are similarly uh, lots and lots of attempts to uncover the truth of Jesus Christ, uh, or at least to raise doubts as to the authenticity of the version that we have now. So you'll see lots of revisionist attempts to rescue the truth of what actually happened 2,000 years ago from the myth of what uh, Christians have talked about ever since, the myth of Christianity. And um, that happens in lots of ways. As I've said, sometimes the revision comes from other religions. For example, many Muslims are convinced that the biblical text has been corrupted over the years, as they see it. Um, the way the Quran has been handed down unaltered in the same Arabic which Muhammad received, they think is in marked contrast to the way the Christian Bible came to us. Uh, more often, the revisionist attempts are pushed by the secular media. So at the turn of the millennium, it was the Jesus Seminar. It had a huge spread in Time magazine. And that proclaimed that 80% of Jesus' sayings recorded in the New Testament were fabricated by the Christian church. And they claimed to prove 
that the only two words which were authentic in the Lord's Prayer were the first two words, our Father. I'll ask you how they managed to do that. The findings of the Jesus Seminar have been overwhelmingly discredited by other academics, uh, not even necessarily Christian academics. But nearly every Christmas, every Easter, media critics will unearth something else that supposedly reveals that 2,000 years of the Christian tradition have got it all wrong. And those two areas of the sort of revision that goes on, nobody can have failed to notice the, the impact that Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code had when that came out about 16 years ago. I read the book. Um, I saw the film. The book was unputdownable, as people said. And the idea that the church invented Christianity is one which is pretty central to the Da Vinci Code. One of the characters is called Sir Lee Teabing. Let me quote what he says at one point. Quote, Almost everything our fathers taught us about Christ is false. Now, of course, the Da Vinci Code is a work of fiction. And it was interesting to me when I looked at the author Dan Brown's official website when the book came out. He says so up front. He said the Da Vinci Code is a novel and therefore a work of fiction. So he acknowledges that the book is not hard academic historical fact. But it still raises the question for us, doesn't it? What are we to make of the theories that some of the characters in that book, for example, hold? The argument in the Da Vinci Code and elsewhere that the church invented Christianity boils down to two main claims. One of them is about the nature of the Bible and the other is about the person of Jesus. And I want to consider each of them in turn. First, the nature of the Bible. Now, the claim about the Bible concerns what is known as the canon of Scripture. And I'm sorry to have to use a technical term at this point. Canon there is not the double-N variety, a big bulky gun from antiquity, which you find in museums. In this case, it's the 1N variety, and it refers to the recognized list of authentic books which make up the Bible. And the argument put by those who say the church invented Christianity goes like this. Look, the books that we have in our Bible were only agreed on by the church a long time after the life of Jesus in the first century, hundreds of years, in fact, uh, in the fourth century. Furthermore, people will claim lots of the texts that were, were ruled out, actually, they say, might tell us more accurately about the true message of Christianity. So that's the argument. Unfortunately, it's one that simply doesn't stand up to inspection. It is true that the first official list of the 27 books of our New Testament appears in a bishop's Easter letter only in the year 367. But those 27 books weren't at that point being given a status that they hadn't had beforehand, they had all been recognized as authentic and authoritative for a long time, most of them for 250 years or more before that point. And the test had always been simple. Were the books apostolic in their origin? So they had to either be written by the apostles or at least their immediate associates. And were the books apostolic in their content and teaching? and specifically in what they said about Jesus. And those tests were applied right from the start. So as soon as the original eyewitnesses of the first generation began to realize 
that their teaching needed to be preserved beyond their immediate lifetime, they began writing the teaching down and circulating it all over the place in the Mediterranean. And the next step was for the churches to start collecting the genuine canonical scriptures together. Just to show you what I mean, the three best-known early Christian writers around 100 AD were called Clement, Ignatius, and Polycarp. We've mentioned Polycarp not too long ago uh, from the pulpit, I know. Now, between those three, between them, they quote from 25 of the 27 New Testament texts. You're saying, ah, oh, what about the other two? Well, they didn't dispute the two they don't mention. They just happen not to quote from them. So we know for sure that by around 100 AD, 25 of the 27 New Testament letters and uh, documents were in widespread circulation, which is just 70 years or so after the events they were relating. Within another 100 years, you've got writers like Tertullian, including in one list, list the four Gospels, 13 letters by Paul, Acts, Hebrews, 1 John and Revelation. It's pretty much our New Testament. That's actually long before the 4th century councils finalized things. I say, well, what about the literatures they excluded? Perhaps you've heard people mention before the Gospel of Thomas, as if there was some sort of conspiracy, that this Gospel of Thomas is the authentic Christianity which the church excluded. Well, most people who say that haven't actually read the Gospel of Thomas the Gospel of Thomas was discovered in 1945 in Nag Hammadi when a young Arab boy unearthed 50 texts on the west bank of the Nile and it contains 114 alleged sayings of Jesus. But it doesn't date from the first century. So the Nag Hammadi texts are not the earliest records about Jesus. And it's no surprise when you read it that it contains some fairly strange things. At one point, Jesus says, split wood, I am there. Lift up a stone, I am there. And that sounds remarkably like pantheism, the idea that the divine spirit is in everything. It's not a biblical idea at all. The Gospel of Thomas ends with a note saying, let Mary go away from us because women are not worthy of life. Again, that's miles away from the positive attitude to women which the apostolic gospels contain. So this later gospel is a million miles from the earlier authentic New Testament accounts of Jesus' life and teaching. It never was accepted as canonical. But still, it's not right to say that the Gospel of Thomas was excluded by some council's declaration. The Gospel of Thomas excluded itself. It didn't harmonize with the testimonies about Jesus that early Christians had accepted as trustworthy. So you see what this amounts to? If you get the distinction, the canon was a list of authoritative books, not an authoritative list of books. These documents didn't derive their authority from being selected. Each one was already authoritative before anyone finally and formally gathered them all together. For somebody to say that the canon emerged only after the church made its pronouncements in its councils and synods would be a bit, a bit like saying, let's get several ac academies of musicians to make a pronouncement 
that the music of Bach and Beethoven is wonderful. And if that happened, we'd say, well, thanks for nothing. We knew that Bach and Beethoven are great before the academies made their pronouncements on it. Well, where does that uh, leave us on the nature of the Bible and the uh, canon of Scripture particularly? I want to issue people a challenge when they ask questions about Scripture, and particularly the New Testament documents, to read the New Testament documents for themselves. In John's Gospel, there's an occasion where Jesus says, if anyone chooses to do God's will, they will find out whether his teaching comes from God or not. If you settle it in advance that you will do what God tells you, maybe such a person could even pray, God, if you're there, show me what to do and convince me of it. Reveal yourself to me. And then you read the Bible and as best you can put it into practice, then that is a prayer he loves to answer and you will know deep down or a person will know deep down that these texts are authentic and life-changing. I want to encourage people to take that challenge, therefore. In one sense, if, if you aren't willing to take that challenge, if a person's not willing, it's just an intellectual game, isn't it? Those who say the church invented Christianity sometimes hope that that's true because it means that the Bible's standards and teachings can be rejected. But if it's the other way around, and the Bible's message instead gave birth to the church, then we've got to be willing for the Bible's message to make a difference in our lives. What about the second area I thought about? The person of Jesus, that other strand of the objection. This is the objection about the person of Jesus Christ, and it runs like this. In the early church, everybody knew that Jesus was a human being and that he was nothing more than a human being. This is the objection, by the way. It was only much, much later that he was mistakenly described as divine, somebody might say. The church invented the divine Jesus, and the church has hushed up the human Jesus ever since. So in the Da Vinci Code, the line between history and myth on this point gets rather blurred because one of the characters mentions the Council of Nicaea, which happened in 325 A.D., pretty regularly at a communion service, will have the Nicene Creed, which emerged from that uh, council. That was the time when the bishops of the church were summoned by the new Roman emperor Constantine to settle whether Jesus was God or not, and to put an end to a controversy which had said that he wasn't divine. Now, that version of the events as covered in the Da Vinci Code is pretty much true. That's true. Uh, that description of it. The Da Vinci Code claims it was a close thing, the discussion there, which it wasn't. There were 318 bishops present at Nicaea, and only two voted that Jesus wasn't God. So it was pretty much the standard teaching about Jesus all along. They knew that to be the case. Of course, when you study the New Testament Gospels, they're unashamed to present Jesus as a human being. We've Talked a bit about that already in the question time. So if he went without food, he was hungry. If he went without sleep, he was tired. They didn't gloss over that at all. He was human. But he was much more than a human. From the outset, that was the only way they could understand Jesus. The only Jesus for whom we have any first century evidence is a Jesus who 
claims to forgive sins, something only God can do. So he's not just another prophet pointing away from himself to God. Instead, he preaches a successions of I am's. He claims to be the center of history and its judge at the end. He claims to be God. He speaks about sharing life and glory with his father before the world began. He accepts the worship of his disciple Thomas, calling him my Lord and my God. So here in space and time is a fellow human being of undoubted integrity who claimed to be God. And when you bear in mind that that claim was hugely countercultural in the context of first century Judaism from which Jesus came, it's pretty striking, isn't it? Some time ago, I came across some exam answers that had gone sadly wrong. They were taken from a book called Non Campus Mentis, and it was subtitled World History According to College Students. Let me give you some, uh, a few of the answers, a sample of them, just so you know not to put this in any exams that might come your way. Number one, Plato invented reality. He was teacher to Harris Tottle, author of The Republicans. Number two, Caesar inspired his men by stating, I came, I saw, I went. When he was assassinated, he's reported to have said, me too, Brutus. <laughs> Number three, without the discovery of the flying bussock, it would have been an impossible job to build the Gothic cathedral. <laughs> and number four, this is the one that's supposedly relevant to tonight, Judaism was the first monolithic religion. It had one big god named Yahoo, <laughs> which is Jewish theology for the computer generation. That's not far wrong because Yahweh the covenant God of the Old Testament, was absolutely exclusive. The first commandment states, no other gods. And therefore Judaism was fiercely monotheistic. And it was into that context that Jesus Christ came making claims which his enemies immediately assumed were blasphemous. That was why he was crucified. I doubt very much that the version of Jesus dreamt up by some of the revisionists, the version of Jesus dreamt up by the Da Vinci Code, for example, would have been crucified. Why get rid of somebody who is at best devoutly commonplace? That makes no sense. No, Jesus Christ always was God without any help from Constantine or the church. And his followers would never have invented that Jesus unless the facts before their eyes gave them no option. So I want to ask people who read the gospel accounts of Jesus where they think his teaching came from as another strand in the side of Jesus being God. Let me quote from Peter Lewis. He says, it's not convincing to say that it was all put into the mouth of a harmless young rabbi by overzealous disciples. To say that the Jesus of the New Testament is largely the creation of his admirers is to say that he was ordinary and they were extraordinary. He was pedestrian and they were sublime. It's to have a boring Jesus and an exciting church. And we all know it's the other way around in most people's experience. It's to have the Sermon on the Mount, the parables of the kingdom, the drama of Calvary, created by fishermen and first-century schools of thought. 
then Peter Lewis concludes, the likelihood of producing Shakespeare's plays by committee is as nothing compared to this. So the reading we had from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, written at the very latest in 62 AD. Let me just go over those words describing Jesus, verse 6 onwards, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, you could say Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father. That is the authentic first century account of Jesus, that he was in very nature God, 100% fully divine, but he was made in human likeness, fully man. The immortal became even mortal. He died on the cross, a cursed death, because out of the most fantastic love, he was taking the curse we humans deserve. So he stoops to our level and then is able to lift us up to his level. He died our wretched death so that we can be forgiven and become friends with God. He didn't stay dead. God raised him up, brought him back to life, and placed him on the throne of the universe. And everyone who's ever lived will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God. They'll either do it willingly and gladly, or they'll do it reluctantly, uh, stupidly, still shaking their fists at him. But no one will be able to doubt it or deny it. Now, that is not some late fabrication of the church. It's from Paul. There's some even evidence even that he was quoting from an early Christian hymn in uh, Philippians 2. This is original first century Christianity. And the only way you can make any sense of how it began and how it continues to this day is the person of Jesus. I wonder if you've heard that piece of writing about Jesus. One solitary life. This is what it says. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in still another village, living in a carpenter's shop till he was 30. Then for three years he was a travelling preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held public office. He never had a family or owned a house. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. He never travelled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He did none of the things one usually associates with greatness. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead... He was laid in a borrowed grave. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings and queens that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of human beings on this earth as much as that one solitary life. And that's surely right, isn't it? 
Jesus towers over everyone else. He's not been dwarfed by 2,000 years of ongoing history. He's changed the lives of millions. How can you explain that? I want to ask people. Unless the New Testament portrait of Jesus is accurate. He's a real human, yes. But much, much more than human. Therefore, I can't afford to marginalize him by redefining the facts to suit myself. So did the church invent Christianity? Well, the questions which I'm left with, as we think about this objection, the question I'm left with is this. Aren't the modern revisionists actually trying to reinvent Jesus, to shape him to a version more convenient for themselves? When the call of Philippians is to bow the knee to him. Let's pray together. We pray you'd help us to weigh these things and to confess Jesus as our Lord clearly and boldly to the world around us. We praise you for who he is and for all that he's done. And we thank you for the gift of the New Testament and indeed the whole Bible. Um, the inspired word from you, Father. We pray you'd build our confidence in it and give us the courage to uh, proclaim it and defend it when we have opportunity. We pray you'd help us not to reinvent Christ, not to encourage others. That's an okay thing to do, but to point people back to the evidence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.